Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. second uh, Ask the Rabbi session. Um, I also wanted to share just uh, a wonderful experience that I had today, um, which uh, I wasn't expecting. There was a lot on my mind, but at 10 o'clock I go into the younger classroom of our preschool. And uh, at first, when I started learning with them, teaching them about a year ago, I thought I would come in with a curriculum and teach a certain kind of Hebrew song or whatever. And as it turns out, there too. Uh, and three, and that just not—that's not who they are. That's just how I've forgotten to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, today I had the beautiful experience that's been growing each time. But it was so pure. I walked in, and even before I sat down to start playing guitar or singing, they just started dancing. <laughs> uh, and sort of what I want to wish for us is that even though so much of what we come together to do is adult conversation, I mean we're really talking and learning and stretching and growing and challenging, uh, wouldn't it be nice if when we showed up, we just danced? So my hope is that the learning feels a little bit like that, in as much as it can become very heavy, it's also releasing. So uh, that's sort of the blessing I wanted to start with for all of us, and certainly for myself too. And now it's all yours. I'll just chew in a cookie until it's time. <laughs> Great, it's been a wonderful class. <laughs> so is it Ask the Rabbi today? It is. Awesome. I got no crumb I, I did have something. Um, I always didn't understand how certain the tribes, right, and the name, because I know cones, I know, you know, and... I wanted to know where I was in that formula. It's a great question. 
especially because last week we finished reading the book of Genesis, where we have all the sons, all the tribes being blessed, and two grandsons, Menashe and Ephraim, who gained the status of Jacob's sons. Very interesting part of the story. And this week we're about to begin the book of Exodus of Shemot, where they're listed as having died, but as prototypes of the tribes that will emerge once we become free. And so to your question, we know about Kohen, Levi, Israel, which is a three-part hierarchy that still exists today in many communities. It's all derived by who your father is. So in traditional Jewish communities, your Jewishness is derived either from your mother or by your own conscious choice and ritual. And your status within being a Jew is derived from father. Anyone who chooses Judaism is in the status of Yisrael, which is the proletariat, of which I am a part too. Thank God. Um, and we as a community, while recognizing that that hierarchy is transmitted, we don't establish any elevated status for a Kohen or a Levi. A Kohen is a priest who is ostensibly descended from Aaron, the priest. Aaron is from the tribe of Levi, of Levi, and so only Aaron's descendants from within that tribe, all from Jacob's son, Levi, only Aaron's children are the priests. Every, one, every other child of Aaron, all those descendants, are Levi's, who are basically the maintenance crew and the singers. That's what they're known for. The Levi's. The Levi's. And the Kohanim, the priests, serve God most directly in the temple service. In many communities, they would get the first aliyah, the first honor at the Torah. They would lead Birkat Amazon, the blessing after meals. They would have a certain status. Your question, however, is based on the tribes and how they connect. So, Cohen and Levi are all from the tribe of Levi, obviously, from what I just said. And Yisrael is everybody else. Now, there are a lot of historical accounts about the lost tribes. You can actually Google and get all sorts of very strange theories. But basically, the tribes as described in the Torah have ceased to exist, except for the remnant of Israel, which is what we are, I guess. I am. Maybe you are. I guess we all are. I'm not lost that much. Um, from the tribe of Judah. Because during a certain part of Jewish history, the kingdoms are divided. There are, actually, Jerusalem is not the only center. There are other cultic centers. And people are at war as uh, Jewish infighting is an ancient tradition, actually. Um, but all of the Jews today who are not Kohen and Levi are all Israel, which is a name of Jacob. It just means Jew. So the other tribes aren't there. When certain um, groups have emerged who are Jewish, like Ethiopian Jews, for instance, who have been called by many different names, some of them are, same as saying Murano for a hidden Spanish Jew, not knowing that that means swine, Right, so Converso is instead of Morano for Spanish, and Falasha was the name for the Ethiopian Jewish community, not knowing that it's a derogatory term for outsider, right, stranger. So they became called Falashmura, which is a slightly better term, and then now they're called Beit Yisrael. Their status as Jews, halakhically, within the Israeli hierarchy is very difficult to ascertain, and because of the right now the monopoly on conversion that the ultra-Orthodox rabbinate maintains in Israel, their status was very difficult, but they claim to be part of the Lost Tribes. 
So part of this mythic history actually has political import, sociological reality for the Jewish people. Which branches of Judaism <clears throat> are deemed okay to make Aliyah, and why? Great question. <clears throat> Definition of terms, Aliyah, moving to Israel, immigration to Israel, and worthy to move to Israel is based on a basic law of Israel. Israel doesn't currently have a constitution. They do have a few basic laws, including the law of return, which welcomes any Jew back home which is a fascinating historical statement because what does that mean when my ancestry is five generations American before that ten generations, you know, the Ashkenazi mutt that I am with Romania and Poland and Hungary and Russia. And what does it mean to return? Well, it means that we, through the use of the word Aliyah and the phrase right of return, the law of return, we affirm, or create, actually, as it were, but we affirm that the Jewish ancestral homeland, Israel, is where every Jew is home. So that's enough framing of Ron's question, which branches of Judaism are deemed worthy for the law of return. What's important to recognize is that anyone who is born a Jew by a basic criteria is eligible for the law of return, regardless of what branch they identify with or no branch that they identify with. The question, perhaps, that you were asking is, when you convert to Judaism, are you welcome to make Aliyah under the law of return, regardless of which form of Judaism you connect to Judaism through? And the, the branches being like Reform, Reconstructionist, Conservative, etc. The mainstream American branches, the mainstream global branches are uh, Orthodox, which isn't actually a movement, but it's an identifiable idea. Um, conservative, Reform, very small Reconstructionist, and in the around the world there's barely any such thing as renewal. In the Bay Area there is a sizable renewal community, but that's not reflected elsewhere, uh, with small pockets here and there. Germantown Jewish Center in, in Philadelphia isn't a renewal shul, but has a lot of Reconstructionist rabbis who identify with the renewal approach. And there are other places around the country that have it, but we are an oddity, as it were. There is... Um, Philadelphia. Yeah. There is a recognition. It's a fascinating history that leads any connection between renewal, okay. Judaism, and Reconstructionism. That the next question. Oh, yes, yeah, so we'll get to that. Okay. It's a very, very interesting one. We'll get to it. Um, if you convert to Judaism through orthodoxy, you are eligible. If you, are, if you convert to Judaism through conservative, you are eligible. If you convert to Judaism through reform, you are eligible. Reconstructionist, I think the answer is yes. I'm not entirely sure. Renewal, the answer is no. Um, all of this is political. All of it is yucky. It isn't necessarily based on practice, because if... Um, reform, yes. Reform, yes. For the right of return. But once you make Aliyah... The question is your life status decision. So, if you make Aliyah as a single person who is uh, converted through a conservative rabbi who on my Beit Din I count men and women. Mm -hmm. In Israel, that wouldn't fly, but in America, it, it does, and so through the law of return, the way it exists, contemporary conservative Jewish practice is recognized. But, once you make Aliyah, you're a Jew in terms of the law of return. You are not a Jew in terms of getting married. 
that means that your status is Jewish in terms of citizenship, but not in terms of religion. Which means that in order to get married, having already converted and made Aliyah through that, you then need to talk to the Israeli rabbinate to be recognized as a Jew. In order to be buried, you to need get married, to get married. And in order to be buried. A book that tells no, a story from a... Legally sl- marry in the, le- under the state. Correct. Okay. But many Israelis, because they reject the same kind of hierarchy, go to Cyprus to get married. Because if you get married outside of Israel, however you get married is recognized once you move to Israel. It's very problematic. The politics of this are very, very troubling, not just from a Jewish pluralist standpoint, but in general. And um, so to Ron's question, that I can say that a renewal Beitin is not counted as valid by the Israeli government, I can say because of people who have converted to Judaism in this community through the renewal movement who have had a big problem when they want to make Aliyah and then call me and I say, you're already Jewish to me. What do you need from me? And they say, well, the Israeli government says I'm not Jewish. I said, they're wrong. And they say, well, we need a letter. So I call, and the Israeli, either the Sochnu, the Jewish agency, somebody, or my colleagues in Israel who do a lot of work on this, say you can form a Beit Din for the purpose of strengthening their Jewish identity. But it feels very weird to me. It feels very wrong to me, actually. Too many people tell me that my brand of Judaism is inauthentic for me to be comfortable saying that to anybody. We disagree, but I couldn't say that a Jew isn't a Jew. There's a, a comedian who's also a very, like, grounded person, Joel Chasnov. He is a friend. He has a book called The 188th Crybaby Brigade, How a Skinny Jew from Chicago uh, Battled Hezbollah. Um, he's an American, fell in love with uh, this Yemenite Israeli, um, was so committed to Israel, so committed as a Zionist, he made Aliyah, even though he was too old, forced his way into serving in the IDF, served in the tank corps, had no idea what he was doing, pretended he didn't have asthma when he had serious asthma, made Aliyah. He's confronted by all of these young Israelis who are like, what are you doing serving in the IDF? We're going to New York when we're out of here. What are you doing here? He's like, no, I'm here to serve the Jewish people. They're like, forget you. And he's willing to make Aliyah. He serves in the IDF, and then he wants to get married. And he's told that because his mother converted to Judaism through a conservative baiting, he's not a Jew. And so the book actually, it's a ve- he tries to write it in a funny way. He's very funny. And so there are moments of humor, but it is a very, very torturous book to read. Um, so there's a lot of politics involved in, your, in the response to your question. So, so I had the... I think you just answered. I had the question of if there's a convert through anything other than Orthodox, and then they have children, are the children accepted? For Aliyah, yes. But not for marriage. Not for marriage, not, not for, for burial. burial. Can go on for generations. So I know this sounds really naive, but who determines that? Who determines and what? And isn't that new? That you don't qualify for burial or for. When Ben Gurion, David Ben Gurion, the first Prime Minister of Israel, needed to form a coalition in order to achieve a government and a state. He gave the ultra-Orthodox sects, which became a political party in Israel, the right to determine life cycle. And why did he do it? Because he believed they were all going to die. Zionism was a secular phenomenon, and religious Zionism was like, boop, nothing. It had 
giant ideas, I think. Rav Cook and a lot of other people were incredible religious thinkers in mystical ways about the purpose of the secular state as part of a Jewish destiny. But they, they were no, there, were, there was nobody there. So Ben-Gurion thought it would be short-lived, and then power would revert to a state. And he was wrong. It was a big mistake, even though it was a necessary mistake. And we're paying the price for it because the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel wield enormous, enormous blackmail power as kingmakers in terms of the government, and therefore they hold incredible sway. The chief rabbinate is a very corrupt organization, as anyone who's following news this last year sees over and over again. Bribery. I mean, the same thing that is wrong about power is wrong about religion when it's in power. Mm -hmm. And the definition of Israel as a democratic Jewish state, which is of course both a stated definition but also an aspiration that has a lot of work to do before it's actually real again. Um, I'm proud of the openness, but I'm a critical Zionist. There's a lot that needs to be fixed in Israel. Part of what needs to be fixed within the civil society is the Jewish oligarchy, the ultra-Orthodox stranglehold, which is actually killing Judaism for so many Israelis. It is, if you know Israelis who have left Israel, many of them, not all, many of them feel burned. Their Judaism is burned because of what's been done to them by the rabbinate. Um, and non-ultra-Orthodox Judaism struggles because government funding gives maybe 5% of its total funding to non-Orthodoxy, and everything else goes to Orthodoxy. So it's not nice to use the word Orthodox in the sense because in our experience, especially in Berkeley and in Oakland, Orthodoxy is part of a larger Jewish fabric and loves being that. But ultra-Orthodoxy as an Israeli political force makes a lot of this very, very ugly. So is there anybody in uh, any forced political forces that, I mean, I know lots of Israelis from Tahiti, and, you know, they they think it's out of control too, but is there anybody in Israel that has a, has started to organize a force? I know women, some women have, that are protesting how they're treated on the buses and all that stuff. But yes, it's flash in the pan activism most of the time in Israel, very reactionary. Yeah. And then you see Women of the Wall, which gets a lot of diaspora attention. But Women of the Wall is a diaspora phenomenon in Israel so far. Mostly, um, mostly uh, channeling reform and conservative rage from outside of Israel. Um, which I think is righteous. I wouldn't try to in any way diminish it, but it's not an Israeli phenomenon. Israelis don't care about the Kotel. You know? um, so what I would say is that there is one political party, Yesh Atid, there is a future being led by a really interesting, charismatic former talk show host whose father was um, a very famous uh, extremist liberal p politician, so he didn't actually achieve as much as he wanted to. The father, his name is um, uh, Lapid, Yair Lapid, and the son is Yossi Lapid. I think I got that right. Maybe it's flip in terms of who's whom. But the younger Lapid, who's the head of Yesh Atid, um, formed, first of all, gained a lot of seats in Israeli parliament this time around, and uh, created specifically a very diverse array of new ministers of Knesset, including someone named Ruth Calderon. If you saw, this was very, it was a viral YouTube video. At the opening session of this current Knesset, mm -hmm. she was given the platform to speak, and she taught from the Talmud. Now, first of all, how weird, right? But second of all, in Israel, how weird. 
she was lambasted in, certain, in many sectors by the ultra-Orthodox because women aren't supposed to learn Talmud. So her presence at a seat of power was already a shift. There are a lot of forces trying to change the status quo, but I'm pretty sure that as long as uh, Likud and Yisrael Beitein, which means Netanyahu at the moment, is in charge, nothing's going to change. He gave a wonderful talk at the Union for Reform Judaism's biennial last weekend, mm-hmm. by video, but it was still a presence. And that was the first time a prime minister had ever spoken at the Reform Biennial, which is 5,000 American Jews. So, uh, yes, people are acting. New Israel Fund is also trying to do a lot of grassroots organizing to increase democracy and pluralism. So, really uphill battle still. Can I ask you a quick question to clarify something you were saying before? Yeah. That uh, committed versions in renewal are not recognized for right of return? What, that means that the rabbi who convened your Beit their ordination was through with Reb Zalman or Aleph? Or the, Aleph. Aleph? Um, if the Beitin is entirely renewal, the renewal rabbi sitting on the Beitin, it won't be recognized. I'll include a renewal colleague, and I have, uh, on my Beitin. But it's on the rabbinical assembly, which means the conservative movement's to da certificate of conversion. I'm the convener. It's called Av Beitin, or Aim Beitin, the head of the Beitin for that. Um, and for the political purpose of Aliyah, that is enough. Um, it's a struggle right now. So it's if an, a renewal, a rabbi who received, who was ordained, receives smicha through a renewal channel process. Process is the convener that's the problem. So far, so I mean, I, don't, I can't speak to every case. Right, but I know the cases I've been involved in. Um, I've, a few people who've worked with me, and who have converted through me. And one of the rabbis on the Beitin has been a renewal rabbi. I don't only count rabbis, but um, there hasn't been a problem. But I know someone who's approached me because their their conversion was rejected for Aliyah. What if there is a couple and one person is Jewish or has converted to Judaism and is eligible for Aliyah, but the other person in the couple is not Jewish? Can they go too? Can they not go? How does that work? I'm pretty sure that they can. Okay. The family can, as long as they've already been married. If there, mm-hmm. if there's um, a relationship that hasn't been legally recognized, I don't know. No, that's a good question. I have a question about the burial piece. I, I feel like I understand why the what the marriage situation is in terms of, you know, recognition of someone's Jewish status because there is no civil marriage mm-hmm. in Israel. Mm-hmm. What what what's the burial situation like? Do you have to have a religious like do you have to be buried by your religion? Like I don't I haven't explored it that much. What I do know is this. There are very, very intricate rules in many cemeteries about who's allowed to be buried there. One of the things that just demonstrates the uniqueness of the Bay Area is that the new Jewish cemetery, Gan Shalom, which is owned by Sinai uh, uh, Memorial, has three sections, um, as does the um, Jewish cemetery Gan Yarok, the green cemetery in Fernwood, in Marin. Is it, they have a separate... They have three sections. The three sections go like this, in the Jewish cemetery. The first section is... Anyone may be buried there who is Jewish according to Orthodox halakha. So I guess it's an Orthodox section, but we don't call it that. 
another section is um, Jews may be buried in this uh, section by according to conservative halacha, but Jews and their partners, what we call Krovei Israel, relatives of Jews. So non-Jews who are partnered with Jews may be buried uh, in the second section. And in the third section, what delineates that from the second and the first is that cremains, the remains of cremation, can be buried there. That wouldn't be in what is ostensibly the conservative section. And um, and presumably, though, I don't know that this has ever happened, a non-Jew who wished to be buried, who wasn't related to a Jew, could be buried in the third section. I don't know. But that's where their their remains are buried. That's the cremation. They can be buried in that third section. Yeah. The what about people who identify as Jewish but are not halakhically Jewish? Jewish conservative movement? I imagine they'd be buried in the third section. I'm sorry, what was the third section? The third section, what delineates the third section is that I'm presuming Jewishness is not required, so you don't have to be related to a Jew to be able to be buried there, as opposed to in the second section where a Jewish family is buried together, Jewish and not. And this is the section of the cemetery? The Jewish cemetery the here. Jewish yeah, cemetery here. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And so as that relates to Jacob's question, one of the reasons for the delineation is that within Jewish law, who can be buried together is a very, very big question. Um... And in Israel, since religious status, including death, is determined by the ultra-Orthodox community, a Jewish cemetery could not include someone that was not Jewish, according to the ultra-Orthodox. And so people are buried according to religion, but the problem is, what if you're Jewish, just not according to the ultra-Orthodox definition? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And I find that quite ugly. There's a lot of really interesting Jewish burial things. Yeah. Are there like n- not Jewish but not related re- affiliated with other religions cemeteries? Like are there sectarian you know, non-sectarian cemeteries? Right, non-sectarian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, That's Mount, a great question. Mount Tamil Pius, because I, I do hospice social work. Mount Tamil Pius has a Jewish section. I mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty mm-hmm. of That's the Rodef Shalom section up there, yeah. Yeah, um, Israel, yeah but we're talking about in Israel, oh, and I'm not oh, sure there is. Uh, there has to be a Muslim burial ground. There certainly right. is. There are many historic Muslim and Christian and Jewish cemeteries. Um, so I have to imagine the answer is yes. I've just never been myself. What, what is the theology of having a certain chunk of land specific to a certain religion? Ain't that the question that the world has been facing forever? Um, but in terms of burial, which unfortunately has been the result of the world thinking that that's the way to delineate life, um, uh, the theology is that we are not done living after we die. Um, I, I wrote a chuva in my, the, my final year of rabbinical school about gay and lesbian burial. And I found a, a source, I think it was either Pirke, Avot de Rebbe Natan or Pirke de Rebbe, Rebbe Eliezer, an ancient midrash, that says um, those who loved in life, those who lay together in life, shared a bed basically, uh, should be buried together. But that was also because proximate burial wasn't side-by-side coffins. It was actually in one coffin because ancient burial practice had your body placed in an ossuary where your body would decompose over time. Second temple time, this was uh, very prevalent. Then after the year, which is one of the reasons we say Kaddish, because that's the time of the decomposition where you feel, according to mysticism, the pain of your body decomposing. And so Kaddish comforts you as your body endures pain. 
your bones are then collected, and you, then you are as, assembled to your ancestors, as the Torah says. So the bones are placed in a bone-shaped box. I think the longest bone is this one, from your hip to your knee, and that's the length of the box. And then the box is placed in your family's burial chamber. Um, that perhaps is a little bit afield from your question, but the, your question about why religion matters, where people, where ground is associated with a certain faith identity. Like I can see, I understand why within a family you're buried in the same plot, but just as in life we might live in a house where we have a certain religion right next door to people of another religion. Not why in the ancient we, world. But why does? Not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you didn't associate between religions. That was the exception to the rule. Now, we live in a postmodern world. According to the Pew study from a few years ago, a quarter of the people who currently identify with any faith, a quarter of them are in a faith not of their birth. It tells you the permeability even within the faith community. It's amazing. So the adoption of identity, the shifting, and the sharing, we live in a world that is not the world of really... 200 years ago and earlier, where your community was your community. A ghetto was also self-imposed. Um, so I think that there's a certain chosenness aspect to it. We are buried with those who are chosen like us. So what if, for example, I were to die in a car accident, I don't have a burial plot. My parents take control of my body and bury me in their burial plot that's in a Catholic cemetery. Right. Are you asking me how I see that as a rabbi? Yeah. Your family is holy. And I'd be very sad, and I would go to your, to your funeral, and I would not feel that I was in any less sanctified ground, and I never want that to happen to you. So, I know you were saying hypothetical, but yeah. the, my mom's voice through me says, poo, poo, poo. <laughs> Meaning, let the evil spirit go away. You said something really bad. <laughs> Um, I, I have a question about It's a big question. About the chosenness that you brought sure. up. Sure. Can I ask somebody okay. just to shut the door? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering how one is supposed to deal with the inherent notion of hierarchy in, um, in chosenness, not only between those who are Jews, but those who are Jews versus converts and Jews versus non-Jews, and also Jews who are male versus Jews who are female, and then also... Um, my short answer is reject it. If but you're isn't, asking... Isn't that inherent to um, what Abraham took up as a covenant with God? Is that, that they are chosen? And so would that be like disregarding a mitzvah if we did that? The Torah is full of stuff. Some of the stuff is problematic from a moral standpoint. The larger question that you're asking is how do we deal with troubling tradition? So I'll give you, um, quoting a teacher of mine, a friend, Rabbi Aryeh Cohen, who teaches at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, and I've, I've quoted him extensively in a lot of my writings. Um, he created a three-paradigm response to troubling tradition. So he uses three different biblical characters, to your point, all of whom are male, um, to respond to troubling tradition. And the vignettes are these. When you have a piece of tradition, a part of tradition that is wrong by your moral standards, not that you don't like, not that's inconvenient, but is immoral, 
And part of the response is going to be the question, well, who do you think you are to judge the Torah's truths, right? So, the first response that he suggests is Aaron. And Aaron, uh, the vignette is, if you don't know the story, you won't like it. If you do know the story, you don't like it, I hope. Um, when the tabernacle, the desert tabernacle, is being dedicated, they bring sacrifices and incense offerings. And two of Aaron's sons become ecstatic with the experience. Named, their names are Nadav and Avihu. And they fill their incense pans with incense. And they offer an uninvited offering, strange fire, indigo girls, thank you, Esh Zara. And they offer it. And a fire shoots out from before God, Lifnadonai, as the text says, and consumes them, kills them. The text seems to think this might be a good thing. Now, we can deal with the scariness, the problematic part of God, or not deal with it. It's clearly a problem to Aaron, let alone to us, you know, textual witnesses. Um, and Aaron's response in the text is what Aryeh Cohen suggests could be the first response, which is, Vaidom Aharon. He was silent. His response to something that could not have come from God. How could this be? Is silence. So Aryeh says, the first option that you have when tradition is wrong to you is to say, I have a problem and that's my problem. I'm going to remain silent. The text is what it is. Religion says what religion says. And it's my problem. Suffice it to say, that's not where he goes and that's not where I think anybody should go. The second paradigm is of Abraham, not of Abraham at the binding of Isaac, but Abraham before that story at Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Amorah, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy the cities. Abraham is not silent. Abraham says, this is the text itself, Khalilalach, shame on you. The judge of all the earth is not going to do justice. And so Aryeh suggests that the second response to troubling tradition is engagement, is wrestling. So if Aaron is the silent response, Abraham is the engagement response. This can't be right. I'm going to shake you, tradition. I'm not letting go. The third paradigm is Moses. After the golden calf happens, God is furious. And God says to Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to kill everybody and start again with you. And Moshe says, you can't do that. You're not allowed. And if you do that, erase me from your book. So the third response to troubling tradition that Aryeh Cohen suggests is a violent ripping from the text. When the Torah says that two men who have sex together are an abomination... The Moses approach rips it out of the text. It's not right. It's not moral. It's not Torah anymore. The Abraham model, in, in contrast to the Moses model of ripping it out, of the violence to tradition, the Abraham model says, that can't be what the text means. God can't mean that. And so, when it talks about uh, two men having sex, in Leviticus, the context is of rape and of cruel use of body through sex. 
to hurt another person. So what the Torah is calling abomination is when sex is used as a weapon, not a monogamous relationship that the Torah can't understand. But to an Aaron approach to that same text, the answer is silence. The text says what the text says, and I can't change it. So to your question, in terms of these three-part responses, what do I suggest we do? And, you know, I don't usually go this far in terms of suggesting a religious response from you. I can talk about my own, but how I feel about it, and really what I offer as, an, as a way of thinking, is chosenness when it indicates better is ugly and not holy. Yes, there are voices from within every tradition, including Judaism, that suggest that there's only so much holiness to go around, and we've got the lion's share. But what Rabbi Erwin Kula says to that is, when I think I have more God than you, I go and get a gun. And I think that is true when it comes to gender politics. I think that is true when it comes to religious warfare. I think that's true when it comes to politics, the fundamentalism that we see still pervading, especially American politics. My truth is the absolute truth. It's a disease. So what do we do to a disease? We try to cure the world from it. But then, of course, that language that I just said sounds like a fundamentalist anyway. So my fundamentalism is non-fundamentalism. It's like a, an old BC comic. I don't know if anybody remembers BC comics. But there's a person who's holding a sign, and the sign says, down with signs. <laughs> right? So another person comes with their sign and knocks them over the head and then holds up their sign, and their sign says, we don't tolerate intolerance. So, but is it different if it's by blood then? Because all religions have a sense of chosenness to it, but the only difference is that in Judaism it's by blood specifically. No. 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 There are you know those who have theorized that Judaism is a race are usually doing so for the purpose of discrimination. If like, isn't Judaism that like is like a uh, convert won't be acknowledged as. By uh, who converted with uh, conservative or reform will not be acknowledged by the orthodoxy. Ah, but I see that as political corruption and not religious truth. The problem with ensconced religion in a government is that the line between what the fa the the diversity of faith within even one faith offers, the diversity of voices, is squelched by political fundamentalism, by the hunger for power. So I don't see the rabbinate acting as a tribe. I see the rabbinate acting as corrupt politicians. Those are my eyes speaking, so I, I couldn't tell you how to see it. But the idea that a convert isn't chosen is the least Jewish thing I've ever heard. Because Midrash Tanchuma, the year 200-ish, says God loves those who choose Judaism more than those who were born Judaism. Because Jews, you've got no choice. But somebody who chose to be close to God in that way, how precious. So if the Israeli government rejects someone who's converted to Judaism as Jewish, they're rejecting Midrash Tanchuma. Yes, they could throw another quote at me. But the use of quotes for the purpose of political ascendancy and to reject a person's worth, that is not a religious act. And so... I mean, I'm asserting a certain vision of what Judaism is meant to be in the world. And I'm, I'm going to assert it for my entire life. I'm fighting for it. Do I believe that we're where we need to be and that religious inclusion 
is the truth of the global Jewish people with the exception of the corrupt few? I can't assert that. That's not the way it is yet. But another very well-known Jewish text is, mine is not, yours is not, ours is not to complete the task, but we're not free from starting. So if someone says, God chose me and you're not a Jew, I want you to say to them, that's your problem, because God chose me too. That's really what I want you to feel, and if you had my personality, you might even say it. You don't have to have my personality, but I want to yell at that person because I'm a rabbi. I don't want to yell at them because they're mean, even though that's true. I want to yell at them because they're not speaking like a Jew. Can I ask a follow-up question about that? Sure, but let me say one last really extreme thing. (laughs) The law of return, as uh, as accepted by Israel, was based on one judgment of who is a Jew. Hitler's. Hitler said that if you had one Jew, and Hitler was not alone, but if you had one Jewish grandparent, you're a Jew. Now, that's not everybody. That doesn't include people who choose Judaism, and I don't know what the statistics were for Jews by choice in Nazi Germany. But even that's not true. Yeah, because you have to have because your mother to make I, I, or grandmother at the To make Aliyah, yes, it is true. I thought that if, you know, the mom isn't, Jewish, then there are cases. There are cases count. still today. The law of return, as originally written, not as always exercised today, the law of return is based on Nazi Germany's rules. Who would have been in the crematoria is who can make Aliyah. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Right. Well, that that's kind of my argument for. I mean, if I'm married to Jake, I'm on that train, whether I convert or not. And so when I'm, I'm confused because what you were saying before actually sounded different, that if I tried to make, if I tried to go to Israel and be recognized as a Jew, then I I actually wouldn't. Correct. Whether or not. Your, yeah. Your being married to Jake. Yeah. I think would make you eligible to make Aliyah, but that's a different case. Right, that's because we're married, and Correct. Like I can go with him, just like I can go Correct. be Canadian with him. If we yes, right. a nationality he argument. Was, right. Yeah. But so if I'm you had one Jewish now. grandparent, you could make Aliyah on your own. Okay. So let me ask you, how is that proven? I mean, I have two Russian immigrant grandparents. How do you go there and... My answer is taking a step back from the question, which is proof sucks. Demanding proof of who you are is it, it demonstrates distrust. And yes, there are reasons for laws and trust needs to be encoded. That is the worst part of anything. Someone comes to me at Nitivot Shalom and says, I am a Jew. I say, welcome. Someone comes to me at Nitivot Shalom and says, I am not a Jew. I say, welcome. I don't say, prove to me you're not a Jew. Mm-hmm. Prove to me you're a Jew. What, what's that about? Right? In fact, it spills into another area of our life as a shul. It's a very difficult commitment that we've all made. And it's something that is certainly part of my own religious growth. For our kitchen at shul, one of our rules is we will not have a mashkiach, a kosher supervisor. Because it presumes mistrust. I don't in many, in most, maybe the predominant majority of food 
of food experiences that happen in a halachic community. That's such a mouthful. Um, there's, there's a kashrut supervisor presuming that the person making food doesn't know enough to keep kosher, and if they do know the rules, will break the rules or will be careless or whatever. So we have a kashrut policy that was very well crafted by the ritual committee um, that indicates this is what you do. This is how you do it. So we have a culture of potlucks here at Netivot Shalom that's unheard of in halachic communities. But we make the commitment, I'd rather someone be able to say, my home can add beauty and value to my community. I'm going to follow those rules. I don't want them to have to say, I'm not good enough. Kashrut is used to judge people. It's about proof. So having a mashkiach means I'm paying someone to watch the food preparation. Because you making the food, that's not good enough. And it's not as extreme as the politics of identity, but it does smack of not good enough of authenticity wars. Can I ask a follow-up question about that? That is also maybe naive, is um, what, what's the political motivation to um, just say people aren't Jewish, but to not okay. accept and welcome people? So I'll, again, I'll widen your question. You said, what's the political motivation? I'll say, what's said, the motivation? Yeah, well, you were talking about this political corruptness and not the religions, like not that these decisions are being made based on political corruptness, not religious beliefs. And so I, look, I'm, I'm also, again, again and again, I'm projecting a certain, yeah. a certain Jewiness in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, to be in a Jew in the world has meant to be persecuted. Mm-hmm. I think Judaism is gorgeous. I don't speak in this way as I'm teaching Judaism, but Jewish history is not, not a pleasant linear story. Mm-hmm. It's mostly do it okay, do it okay, do oh, kicked us out. Do it okay, do it okay, beat us up. Do it okay, do it okay, do it okay. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not only true about the Jews, but it's certainly the story of the Jews over time. Okay. Um, and so the motivation to see someone as not Jewish is based on fear of non-Jews. Just the internalized trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think we have a lot of healing that we need to do. There have been books that have been marginalized and absolutely basically burned, um, like Avram Berg, who's a former speaker of the, the, the Knesset, wrote a book, I think it, the title is The Holocaust is Over, Let's Rise from Its Ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was taken very seriously but he was suddenly condemned by many, many people as saying, oh, you've forgotten. Mm. You've forgotten. And he's the child of survivors, you know, mm-hmm. but you've forgotten. And it's not to say that I agree with everything he said. He went out of his way to say that the Golan, the north in Israel, is no more beautiful than Marin. Right? It happens to be... It looks exactly the same. It looks exactly the same. <laughs> in beautiful ways. But when, you, but when you identify as a romantic Zionist, as I am one, with what those hills mean, and, you know, it's... Breathing the air of Golan, and like, you know, you don't have to do that. So what if it's geologically true? Like, <laughs> that's not. So he, I think, in a certain sense, like he was taking a very important healing statement, and and sort of demolishing romance. Um, and I think maybe that was his own healing too. I, I, I only don't like it myself. He can like it himself. Um, but the internalized trauma of the Jewish people has led us to feel very afraid of everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's not true of all of us, and I don't mean to say that that's how I feel, mm-hmm. but there is a certain level of truth. I mean, for all of the complications of modern Zionism, it is there for many reasons, including a safe haven. Mm-hmm. 
so this poli political piece is isolationist. It's like yeah. That's based the yeah. kind of it's just there being the willingness to say I don't trust you to be part of the family. You don't really you you, mm -hmm. you can't know. Mm -hmm. You you can't know how how hard this is, and and you you don't have enough baggage to be welcome. Mm -hmm. Um. I want to say that that's so wrong, and I want to say that that person needs comfort. And from my modern experience as a rabbi in a community, in every community I've been in, um, where it's so beautiful to see all the different faces. We don't look the same. There are so many people who are leading Jewish communities today if we had only trauma to offer, would never have found their way to becoming Jewish in the first place. And what a gift it is, not just for the genetic pool, but for the incredible gift of diversity that we actually are. Mm -hmm. um, we have to live. There's some, such beauty in Judaism. But I do understand that sort of that trauma. I really do. Is there some validity mm -hmm. in not wanting a religion or culture to be... Um, I'm forgetting the word that I want right now, but, you know what some people do with Native American culture, kind of like taken apart in bits and, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, non-Jews in L.A. are having B'nai Mitzvah. What is it called? A bar oh, mitzvah. Bar, oh, what are they called? Oh, just because they oh, have in plural, B'nai Mitzvah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a cool party. I mean, it was, you right. know, if you remember, I remember a different appropriate, strokes. Appropriate. A different strokes. I'm Arnold, one of these episodes, the wanted to have a bar mitzvah. <laughs> because I, I'm going to be a man. And right, then the so rabbi comes yeah. and says, actually, you know, circumcision's important. It's like, shalom, and he walks away. But also, the, all the uh, hype around uh, Kabbalah. And yeah, yeah. And all that. I mean, I can imagine being yeah. protective of your culture, in the, you know, in a way of, you know, not wanting it to be appropriated, I guess. Yeah, that's different, but that's not, I don't think that that's the fear that, that Jews have. No, right. no, it's, you know, the, there's, there's some really interesting work done on the difference between tribe and people. Yeah. And from a tribal place, both trauma and also sort of pride, I guess, in accumulated baggage in the DNA and accumulated good stuff maybe too. The Jews aren't as... Uh, the good stuff isn't what we shout about. Um, you know, maybe there's a... I don't know. I think, it's enduring, I think it's enduring trauma that leads to the distrust. Can I ask a historical follow-up question? Yeah. Does that mean that... Was there like a heyday or like a time that you can point to when the rise of concern over converts or concern about who was in and who was out happened? You know, I yeah. read a sociology paper about the emergence of Reform Judaism as a response to like Ashkenazi Jews coming to America or something mm. like this. It yeah. had to do with like the political who's coming in and like a Absolutely, but that, that wasn't was about, making. right, that wasn't as, and you can correct me, that wasn't as no, far I, as I understand about who is a Jew, <laughs> it's about am I ashamed of my backwater cousins. Yeah, and it was like a response to these people are backwards and we don't want to be like them. So yeah. was there a period maybe like before the Holocaust when people were less concerned or like more inviting because, you know, Jews were... I'll, I'll say this. The idea that you could adopt a religion has always been there in, in many, many religions, but it's never been as accessible and easy as it's become. I mean, it really is a, a sort of a more recent within history phenomenon. But to your question directly, people have always discussed how to become a Jew, and the criteria for entry has changed over time. So for instance, and I have a talk on this called When Did Heresy Begin? Um, because reform 
and orthodox and conservative are terms that are all reactive, right? There only began to be this thing called orthodoxy when reform reared its head because you needed heresy in order to then be defined as orthodox. And in re response to reform, which is change-making, there are those who say, don't change so much, they conserve tradition, hence conservative. So every one of them is reactionary. It's fascinating. That wasn't your question. Um, <laughs> although I like to talk. Um, <laughs> it's a good political move to answer the question you want to answer. I know, isn't it? Isn't it? I, yeah. watch, I watch that a lot now. <laughs> I thumb jabs. Um, when the Talmud talks about the criteria for entering into the Jewish people, they say, just before someone enters the mikvah, you should sit by their side and remind them some of the light mitzvot, some of the easier-to-do commandments, and then they enter. When that text, and it, it's conveyed a few different generations, but when Maimonides gets his hands on the text, he says, remind them of the chief mitzvah, which is to believe in God, and then tell them the history of the Jews, and then remind them of the, of the mitzvot, and then have them enter. Which, first of all, invents a mitzvah. There's no command to believe in God in Judaism. Um, Maimonides, as an Aristotelian, a what? Uh, follower of Arist Aristotelian logic, Got Aristotle. Um, and it's all about proof. Mm -hmm. uh, and is a physician, and is this and that. He's very cool and really liked himself a lot. Um, <laughs> corrupted Judaism by introducing the notion of dogma. And so dogma became a harder threshold over which to pass in order to become a Jew. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, 11th century. <laughs> um, Just get a time frame. Yeah, but that's modern yeah, for me. Yeah. Uh, and over time, there are communities that would um, experience high rates of people choosing Judaism or lower rates. The Karaites, way back in the day, rejected the notion of conversion. Um, I'm sure culturally Sephardic, Ashkenazi, Yemenite, Italian, everybody has a different way of doing it. But there was no heyday when everybody by choice was becoming Jewish. There was a small period of history when a Jewish kingdom was forced converting people. I don't even know how long that was, and it's clearly the exception to the Jewish rule. Um, I would say we're currently in the heyday. Okay. I was just, like, imagining, well, this is irrelevant, but prior to World War One, was weren't a lot of Jews assimilating or feeling like, oh, look, we belong, and we're just like everybody else, and we can be Germans just like everybody else is German. Mm -hmm. And... I'm wondering if they would have been more welcoming of people if they wanted to join because they weren't feeling reactionary. They were feeling very optimistic about their place in the world and in mm -hmm. Europe especially. Yeah, no, I would say no. Okay. <laughs> I would say no. No, the threat, the gates would probably still be barred. They would still be barred. Because it was a tribal identity okay. that was sort of in the back of even the assimilationist mind. Okay, so even but, then they were saying, look, we can be one of you, but you can't really be one of us. Yeah, if you want to read an interesting novel, not from a German perspective, but from a, a 20th century, early 20th century American perspective, Bernard Malamud's uh, The Assistant. It's a really, it's a very painful book, but it's a really interesting book, uh, which typifies some of the, the mindset. But what's interesting, oh, sorry, you go. <laughs> yep. This could be your last chance. I'll do it really quick. There are many, there are many uh, people, at least within the Hebrew Bible, that are are seen as or convert or like Noah are never identified as specifically. Jewish. There is, there is are yet claimed no one in the Torah who converts. 
12. Same one. So Abraham wouldn't be seen as converting or Sarah? Nope. Or Tzipporah who marries Moshe. But the Midrash, the rabbinic levels, would love us to think that Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the former Midianite priest, when he hears of all the miracles, converts to Judaism. Usually the two prototypical examples of people who converted to Judaism are Yitro, Jethro, and Ruth. Um, but the, Ruth does adopt the Jewish identity of her mother-in-law, Naomi, but doesn't undergo mikvah, doesn't learn with a rabbi, because there ain't no such thing, um, and Sipora and the other, um, the other characters in the Torah who marry the Israelite, marry into the Israelite family, that's how you become an Israelite, by marrying an Israelite. There are, there's a whole group that followed the Israelites out of Egypt, called the Erevrav, the rabble. They were just part of the people. It was by association. So the notion of conversion itself is a very post-biblical, and I would therefore say modern, idea to convert in, to accept the covenant, to do ritual stuff. Two things. One, I actually have a question. <laughs> Two, let's <laughs> go back to what you're saying. So my master's thesis, which uh, was all about uh, conversion to Judaism in the, like, just prior to the First Crusade, and I would believe that there, there was a period of relative freedom to convert, and there were many people who did it, and not like a huge amount of people, but I mean, at least that was just prior to Maimonides that there was a period of acceptance. And, okay, because that makes that like, to, yeah, and then, and then the like, so it was better, and then it kind of <clears throat> dipped, and then we're kind of coming back, I would say, too. Well, in terms of like whether or not Israel accepts converts, like it just makes it seem as if it is a political move to say who is in and who is out for political reasons rather than for religious reasons. Except that the people in political power saying it are saying it because they believe it's what God says. And so the difference between political power and religious power, when you are a religious politician, is difficult to identify. actual question goes back, I was going to ask it before we were talking about burial. Um, I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to ask what I'm actually asking, because <laughs> I'm going to ask the question better. Number one, broad question, what happens when we die? Number two, my actual question, <laughs> my actual question is, more specifically, let's talk about Gilgal Neshamot. The transmigration of souls and reincarnation. What did you say? What was the word? Gilgul Neshamot. Gilgul Nashimot. Nishamot. Transmigration of souls. Or yeah. roughly known as reincarnation. Ish. Mm. And, and there is, yeah. I'm not going to answer my own question. Please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer with a survey of Jewish responses, and I can tell you what I believe. Awesome. A survey of Jewish responses resembles many different traditions all combined. <coughs> um, and so that's not to give a non-answer. It's to say that there are those who see in the Torah, and I'm one of them, um, that the notion that there is a bifurcation between soul and body, there's no difference between soul and body. When I die, all of me dies, and I am buried. And uh, go to a place called Sheol, which is the underworld, um, but which is not a place where I suffer. It's a place where um, 
my process of dying continues. The dis disintegration of the body is what happens there. It is later, with a platonic ideal and all sorts of different parts of philosophy, that the notion of a soul as distinct from the body uh, emerges. And with that, and Judaism includes, embraced a lot of that, the idea that the soul returns to God when the body dies. And so when I die, my soul returns to God, and that's immortality. Uh, and my body going to the earth, that is not who I am. That's my body. There are many Midrashim, including when Moses dies, where his soul begs not to leave him because I've loved this body. I've loved being Moshe. Uh, and God says, come home to me. It's a beautiful Midrash, a very, very painful and beautiful Midrash. Um, resurrection within the Tanakh, the whole Hebrew Bible, is a fascinating question. Certainly for Christian interpreters of the Tanakh, resurrection is present in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. For a Jewish scholar, that's not necessarily the case. Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones is not about individual resurrection, it's about national resurrection. And so the idea that I will come back to life is not premised on Ezekiel. The idea that Tchiat uh, HaMetim, the resurrection of the dead, and we learned the Amidah last week, it's present in the second blessing of the Amidah. I believe that death is not the end, right? that God will bring me back is post-biblical, um, and is the idea that I will come back as me. Which means I never was anybody else. I'm uniquely me. Um, and, and that's not to say that that's the Jewish approach. It's hard to say what the Jewish approach is. And part of what distinguishes Judaism from Christianity is Judaism believes no one ever came back. Right? So the proof is in the conjecture. There are evidences within the Tanakh, such as the book of Samuel, where uh, the Witch of Endor section, where uh, the prophet Samuel is, after having died, the prophet's spirit is brought back up by a witch who is asked by King Saul to consult with Samuel. It's a very strange section of Tanakh. It I actually doesn't have, I love it too, it doesn't have really any other section that looks like it. So what happens after death? We don't know. We imagine all sorts of amazing things. We imagine, according to many parts of Kabbalah, that when you die, you get to go learn Torah directly from God. There are seven dimensions of heaven, and when you get to the closest place, you learn Torah directly from God, nurtured and fed by the ziv of the Shekhinah, by the, the luminescence of God's uh, female presence, of God's givingness. Um, that sounds kind of cool to me except for one thing I don't know who else is going to be there and the description of who gets in and who gets out means that there are certain levels that certain people get to so anytime there's a hierarchy associated with the world to come I sort of throw up a little bit um, there's a great book by Dara Horn uh, called The World to Come in which she discusses a lot of this stuff Gilgul Nishamot, the notion of transmigration of the souls, is a Kabbalistic idea that says that souls do come back, and when I remember things that I couldn't have remembered, right? that's because that's who I was. And so there are those who say that Joseph's soul animated Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, or Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. They were 
they were the soul of that ancient person resurrected or reincarnated, not resurrected. Because resurrection um, can either be in the world to come, my soul and the soul of all of my ancestors and of all people will all be alive. Reincarnation might, uh, reincarnation might, resurrection might be, no, my body will be fully resurrected, which is one of the reasons there's a taboo when it comes to cremation. I don't think that's a reason to not cremate. I believe we shouldn't cremate, and that's not why. Um, it's not a predominant, it's not a mainstream, it's not a mainstream belief that the transmigration of the souls happens. It's pretty present in the Kabbalah and mysticism. It is a fairly mainstream idea that some sort of eternal life happens. There's a lot of theories about what the world to come is like. My favorite is uh, a much more human, much more immediate type of experience of the world to come. Uh, Reb Chaim of Elohim, who is one of my favorites, uh, died in 1821. He wrote in a book called The Nefesh HaChaim, the world to come is a person's deeds themselves. The world to come comes because you do something. That's the world that is coming. Because you did something, or you did something bad, or you did something good. That's the world to come. Or, to quote the, uh, what's it, Terminator 2, <laughs> no fate but what we make. So, yes. there's your world to come. Well done. Um, <laughs> what do I believe? Right, so what do I believe? Um, none of this is provable. And none of it is some fundamental faith that I believe in an external God who makes things happen and therefore dot, dot, dot. Um, but I ache to see my grandfather. And I really wish you were here. And I hope one day I get to hold his hand. Am I speaking as a person? Am I speaking as a Jew? Am I speaking as a rabbi? I mean, yeah, I'm all those things. I'm also speaking as an eight-year-old boy. Um, and so, I hope in a world to come. I believe that when I die, it's not done. But Judaism doesn't encourage me to think in those terms, and that's one of the interesting things about Judaism. It encourages me to think about this world much more than the next. There are plenty of places in the Talmud and elsewhere where it says, don't waste your time on speculation. You'll find out. Um, and to be a little bit silly about it, when um, so, someone said to me recently, so you, you do a lot of interfaith work. And I said, yeah. He said, so you know that some of the people you work with think that you're damned, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, my answer, and I mean this, even though it sounds a little snarky, I said, you know, we have enough work to do in this world Let's, let's, not, let's not worry about disagreeing about the next. Let's fix this one. Um, and so even though the rawest part of me um, needs to believe and therefore actually does believe in the eternity of the soul without needing to really understand what even I just said, um, I'm really busy worrying about this world. So what happens after we die, and do I think sometimes, really in all honesty, that there are things that I can't possibly know that I feel like I know? Yeah, yeah, I really do. Uh, does it frighten me? 
Absolutely. Do I know what to do with it? Sometimes. Um, and I'm not preoccupied necessarily in identifying how that happened or how to explain it. I just think that I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. Um, now, there's a lot written. There's the, the book to read on it is The Death of Death by Neil Gilman. Neil Gilman, N-E-I-L-G-I-L-L-M-A-N. He's a dear, dear teacher of mine. Um, and I, I'll say this. There may come a day that I'll spend more time thinking about the world to come. Um, but the way I feel right now, that day that I'll spend more time thinking about that is when this world has fewer problems. The Death of Death. So I have one that a group of us were actually talking about last Shabbat, and it's more properly Kate's question because she brought it up first, but you're recording, yeah? Yeah. So she can listen because um, she's not here. Um, uh, we were just talking about how the um, idea of redemption comes up in Jewish liturgy, and we we're all like, what does that even mean? Like, what is what what do we mean by that? Or is there a thing that we mean by that, or multiple things? Like, what, what is redemption? We're sort of talking about how, like, we have no, I mean, like, we think of, like, you redeem a coupon, or, like, prizes <laughs> the arcade, but, like, clearly it's not like you're like, okay, you get, like, extra God points, like, at the arcade for, like, an Maybe extra prize, know. but, like... <laughs> You do, clearly. And by the way, if you watch Dogma with Kevin Smith, God loves Ski Ball. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really important. That's a great movie. That's a great movie. Um, By the way, if you want to watch that movie and look for the deepest theological part of it, it's when Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, the two angels, um, are in a parking garage discussing whether or not it's better to be a person or an angel. Mm. Really, really. It's it's Midrash, actually. There's Midrash that says what they say. Um... Generally, what is redemption? Yeah. Great. <laughs> you have 12 minutes. Ready, set, go. go. And do we actually get to say goodbye to you? We will. Oh, okay. the, um, the word geulah is the Hebrew word for redemption. Right before the Amidah, remember what I said about connecting the Shema to the Amidah, connecting geulah to tefillah? It's connecting redemption to prayer. Um, redemption could mean liberation, freedom. Redemption could mean salvation, being saved in... Um, it's actually liberation of a different kind. Redemption... Saved from what? Right. <laughs> like, what, what is that? Like, my... As, as say, a sort of... Right, as a modern American, like, when you just say, talking about, like, somebody being saved in a religious context, to me has this like, fundamentalist Christian ring to it. Like, oh, are you saved? Well, the reason it has what a fundamentalist Christian ring to it is because it has a fundamentalist Jewish ring to it. <laughs> right? And that's not from a place of pugnacious arrogance. I'm saying that all religions, not all religions, Judaism and Christianity in particular, and there, I'm, other religions have this too, but I know Judaism and Christianity best, um, have notions of salvation and redemption. Um, it means saved from bad. It might mean saved from the bad part of yourself. It might mean saved from temptation. It might mean saved from mistake, saved from guilt, saved from shame, freed from slavery, 
freed from oppression. You know, I, I hesitate many times when I'm doing what I consider sacred civic work because it's a corruption of the fabric of our society for religion to wield power. I really don't like that. On the other hand, I recognize that in our society, religion wields power. Uh, and if I don't speak with my voice, there are many who use religion as what I consider a weapon of oppression. Um, and so I do speak, but reservedly, as much as I can. Because uh, if I sound like I'm speaking reservedly, I don't have any impact. Um, except for those who are looking for humility, who already agree with me. So I'm not doing anything good. <laughs> um, Let me say this. A redeemed world is a world where no one suffers unnecessarily. Maybe no one suffers at all, because what's necessary suffering? Um, Gershon Shalom was the founder of the study of Kabbalah, the ac academic study of Kabbalah. He's quoted by a rabbi, a modern Orthodox rabbi named Mark Angel, as having described a mystic as this. And I actually think that he's talking about a social justice activist, which is why I think mysticism is social justice activism, unless you're a hermit, in which case no one cares. Um, <laughs> which is, a, really, no one cares. Uh, which is what Gershom Shalom really? says in Religious Authority and Jewish Mysticism, that you could be a mystic who's a hermit, but tradition is not interested in you. Tradition is interested in if you use your mystical experience to hurt or help the world. So... Gershom Shalom says elsewhere that the definition of a mystic is someone who has an intimation of the world as it ought to be, is in pain because the world is not there yet, dedicates their life to bringing the world that is meant to be into the world, into reality, knowing it's never going to happen. Redemption happens when that happens, when the world that ought to be is the world we're in when the world to come is the world that is. Which means all the things that are wrong right now in the world need to stop being, need to stop being. Wrongness needs to go away. That'll be redemption. And so for some of us, you know, not presuming that we all agree politically, but the incredible um, injustice of the global economy leads me to describe the world as unredeemed. There are all sorts of examples I could point to, but a great one, you know, we're a partner shul with an organization called Jubilee USA. The exec director of Jubilee USA, which is a group not only dedicated to um, relieving the developing world of unjust debt, global debt, but also to recognizing that the vulture capitalism that leads hedge funds to own glo a nation's debt um, leads to something like this. So Eric LeCompte, who is the exec director of Jubilee USA, visited Netivo Shalom and gave a talk at it. He's, he said, we should feel very proud that the United States government um, provided $32 million, either directly or indirectly, to, um, to the Philippines after uh, the typhoon, after Haiyan. Um, but because of the Marcos regime and other unjust global practices, even the days since the typhoon, the Philippines has paid debt service of $27 million a day. Hmm. So for all the heroism we think that we've achieved, and all the justice we think that we've achieved, and it was a good thing to give that money, 
give aid. Um, that's an, that is an unredeemed world that allows that to be the reality. So I think, I actually think that at their best, religion and politics should be conflated. Because at their best, at its best, religion is about a just world where no one suffers, where every image of God sparkles and is treated with dignity. Um, if politics isn't about that, then politics sucks. And when religion's not about that, religion sucks. Um, and so redemption is very much about universal human dignity, to me anyway. A particular people's narrative doesn't always lean that way. That's a tension between particularism and universalism. We were redeemed from Egypt. Great, if that doesn't lead me to look at other people who are slaves today. I'm not redeemed either. Um, who said it? Oh, I'm going to forget the source of Lila Watson. It's a really important quote. Right? So, and some have told me recently that it might not be her, but I'm going to still believe it's her because that's what belief's about. Um, <laughs> she said, if you came here to help me, just stop. <laughs> and that's not as nicely as she said it. But if you came here because you believe your liberation is based upon mine, is bound up in mine, then we have work to do. So that, that says it too. question about sin. Great. We've got four minutes. <laughs> How many can you commit in those four minutes? Oh, right. Well, just knowing... In my heart? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Being raised Catholic, there's always the notion of original sin, so you just come out of the womb, you're a sinner. Right. So I wasn't sure if that's something... Original sin is not a Jewish concept. Okay. Um, that people's hearts lean towards sin from childhood. We learned that, uh, well, we learned that by human experience, but we also are told that in the Torah after the flood. Um, but sin, in a Jewish context, has many different Hebrew words, and the most, the biggest word, the most inclusive word, is the Hebrew word chet. Chet is a great word, because it doesn't mean evil, it means I missed the mark. It literally means missed the mark. So a sin is a failure, but it isn't a condition. But that was short. That was good. That's my favorite part of Yom Kippur is the, you know, the saying all of the things that you've done. This is a really great, thorough list, and there's things that are really <laughs> nuanced in there that, you know, unless you had it written down... You know, and I can't remember all of them, but unless you had it written down, you wouldn't remember that you had done it. Right. And I like, I, that's my, I think, favorite part of the whole holiday. <laughs> it is. It, is. it really is. It just, like, feels really good. I love Yom Kippur. To, it's to it's the best it. day. Yeah. There's, I'll um, share with you two sweet things about Yom Kippur, and with, with that, we'll, we'll be done for it tonight. Um, one of them is my teacher, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, who's the dean of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles, says that at a certain point, you know, what you do when you make that list, the litany of sins that we've done, you do this. Mm -hmm. So I was raised to do this, and I remember, like, listening to people, like, oh, I hear that. You're really mm -hmm. clopping your chest. I, I, I hear that. He said at a certain point, that began to hurt. So what he does now is he does this. Mm -hmm. 
sort of he uses his hand to sort of soothe himself, says, yes, yes, you did that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's going to be okay. Forgiveness. Right, right, forgiveness in the gesture. And the other sweet thing is much older than, than uh, Brad. Um, and if he listens, he'll be glad to say I said something was older than Brad. Um, the founder of Hasidism, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, was once asked by a student, the student says, Rebbe, listen, you know, we're listing all these terrible things we've done. Why is it such a nice melody? Why are we singing such a happy song? Because when you do this, it's so. So they said, Rebbe, why is it such a happy song? And the Baal Shem Tov looked at a student and said, "You ever find yourself cleaning a pot in the kitchen and then just like whistling? It's so nice to clean up our schmutz, isn't it? It's a great, great thing. So, sin is something." we can learn from is actually uh, and could be part of redemption ultimately is the answer so what I'm going to do is say thank you to everybody for another great Ask the Rabbi session I hope that whoever's listening enjoyed it have a good night